Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, so today I'm beginning a brand new series called Fear Factor. Don't you love that title? How many of you remember in the early 2000s the show called Fear Factor? How many of you were big fans of Fear Factor? Loved that show. I watched it all the time. And, you know, here's a picture of it. You remember it was Joe Rogan. He was actually the host of this show. Some of you know him from today. He's got probably the world's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. And uh, he was the host of Fear Factor. It was mostly young people and what they did. And you'll know why it was young people, considering what they did. And they had to confront and go into these incredibly fearful situations. They would hang from buildings and bungee jump and jump into pits and do all kinds of crazy things. But one of the things they always did every single week, and trust me, I was a big fan. I rarely missed it because I always wanted to imagine myself in these situations and what I would do. And, you know, call that a little bit perverse, but maybe it was. And one of the things I always did every episode is you had to eat something gross. And there was always this interaction with the animal kingdom, mostly the insect world. And so, for example, there was this one where they smeared honey on your face and let the bees settle in. That's always fun. This one where you eat bugs, uh, just straight out bug eating. Uh, this is called a spider bite, <laughs> where you bite the spider. Uh, this one is the spider pit, where they throw you in, let these spiders grow. They, they protect your eyes. The worm coffin, where they immerse you in an entire vat of nothing but worms. Uh, the rat stew, stew made out of rats. And finally, my favorite, uh, the Fear Factor pizza with live caterpillars. Slimy yet satisfying, I like to say. And I'll never forget this one episode we were watching. I had the kids with me and we were watching. They were younger then. And uh, they had this donut thing where they had those stuffed donuts, you know, cream-filled donuts and that. And uh, you had to go pick a donut and eat the donut. No matter what, you have to eat the donut. And some of them had like Bavarian cream or Boston cream filling in them. And some of them had either bugs or worms or rotten squid. And I remember that episode, and I remember saying to my kids, I'm such a jerk, I remember saying to them, I could eat the bugs and the worms, I don't know if I could eat rotten squid. And I was making this determination, trying to teach them important lessons in life. And so, so anyway, two days later, catch this, two days later, my kids go out to Tim Hortons and buy a box of donuts. Now, that should have been a tip-off for me, but I'm not that bright. And so anyway, they had them. I got home. There was only one left. They said, oh, we bought donuts, and there's only one left, and it's your favorite, the Canadian maple. And I went, oh, well, that was nice of you guys. Still not getting it. So I bite into the Canadian maple, and there's something inside of it, and it comes out, and I pull it, and there's some stringy piece of something gross, and I go, what's something in my donut? I'm still not getting it. My kids go, maybe it's rotten squid. I said, well, they're not going to put rotten squid in at Tim Hortons. <laughs> so I pull a thing to sight. I don't know what it is. I take another bite. I go, I go in for another bite, and I pull out of another one. And, and my kids, even to this day, talk about that story because I was determined to eat that donut irrespective of what was in it and I was pulling these things out and I kept what is this stuff turns out I don't know if you realize this this part of the story that my kids stuffed the donuts with beef jerky 
and told me it was rotten squid. And you know, beef jerky would be fine, but when it's all covered with gooey cream and stuff and you don't know what it is, it's just a little bit on the gross side. And so anyway, I think we've all encountered at one point in our life the fear factor. And fear, most of the time, is something negative. And we're going to talk about some of the negatives of fear in this series. You know, for example, uh, when you look at the champions of faith, why were they champions of faith? Because they confronted and overcame their fears. So David overcame his fear of Goliath. We have Jehu overcame his fear of Jezebel. Job overcame his fear of his wife. And Satan, he, he was scary too. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what faith is. And so you have this picture where you have the disciples when they were lacking faith. Do you remember what Jesus would say to them? Why are you so fearful? Why? Because fear is the enemy of faith. And we have all kinds of fears today. We actually have named the fears today. We call them phobias, right? There's acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. There is arachnophobia, which is the fear of spiders. There's my personal favorite, which is xylophatoquiopia phobia, which is, are you ready for this? The fear of mispronouncing words. <laughs> I had a little bit of that fear just now. <laughs> but you don't know whether I pronounced that word right or not wrong, do you? And so what we're going to be doing today, rather than delving into those other things, which we will look at, how do we overcome fears, I want to talk about the upside of fear. There is an upside of fear. For example, if you can't swim, a little healthy fear of water is maybe not a bad thing. If you are not a lion tamer, maybe some of you aren't, then a little fear of wild, deadly beasts might be a pretty healthy thing. If you don't know how to fly, which some of you don't, a fear of heights is not necessarily a bad thing. I remember when I was a young person growing up, I had zero, don't ask me why, zero fear of heights. I was completely fearless. I used to, as a young kid, climb up those transmission towers, two and 300 feet. We had a street, uh, street light in front of our house, right in front of our house. I used to climb up that street light, go out along, hand over hand to the lamp, and hang by one hand over the cars as they went underneath. That's, I, my mother didn't like that, by the way, but I used to, I used to do that. We, when I was in, in high school, we went to a party with my friends. We were in this car. The party was on the sixth floor of an apartment block. They ran into the building, got into the, the elevator, and the elevator closed. I decided I was going to beat them to the party. Yes, I climbed six stories up the outside of that building, balcony to balcony, like Spider-Man. I am Spider-Man. Peter Parker was what they called me in high school. And uh, when they arrived, they could not figure out how I got into the party before they did. Now, I'm not saying any of these things were smart. They were not smart. Last week, just want you to see how things have changed. Last week, I had a branch I had to cut down on a tree. I put up this, the ladder, extension ladder, so I'm only up about 20 feet. I got up there. And I was clinging to that ladder like a baby monkey to its mother. And I think, why am I so afraid of this? When I was young, I would be dancing on one foot up here. And I was just clutching the ladder and trying to reach out with the saw and cut off this little branch. I have become such a wimp. But it's a good thing, I think, maybe at my age. What do you think? I don't know if it's maturity or what it is. And so what I'm pointing out to you is that a little bit of fear... If it's the right kind of fear, it's not a bad thing. Today we're going to talk about the most important fear you will ever know in your life, and it's called the fear of the Lord. 
So let's talk about Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers, my utmost for the highest, one of the greatest of all uh, devotionals ever written. One of his famous quotes is this. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I want you to think about that because we live in a world that's full of anxiety, full of fear. They say something like 50% of people uh, suffer from anxiety or fear. You know 50%, that's an epidemic. And if we could figure out, if we could discover what it was to fear the Lord, we would fear nothing else. So here's my text. We're in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And I want you to listen carefully. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of your life will be added to you. That sounds like a pretty good reward for the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? Wisdom and length of days and all these things. But here's the problem. Most people do not know what the fear of the Lord is. And I bet, I bet every single person in this room has heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord. And I bet you, you heard some preacher explain away the word fear. And they probably said, I know it says the fear of the Lord. But understand the word fear here means reverence. It means revering God. It means having an awe of God. How many of you have heard that sermon? You've probably all heard that sermon. I got news for you. You know this word fear here? You know what it actually means? The word fear here? You know what it actually means? It means fear. That's what it means. It means exactly what it says. It's the same word that was used when the children of Israel came up against Goliath. And it says the men of Israel were dreadfully afraid and they fled. Same word. Why would the God want us to fear him? And the understanding of this is this. Because it is fear. Make no mistake about it. And the understanding is this, is that his intent is for us to understand who he is, who he is and who we are in comparison. For us to recognize that we are not on the same par as God. We see so many people reducing God to your buddy, your baba, your homeboy, your heavenly butler. He is not your buddy. Go look in scripture and find out what happened when these people... These men of old and women of old encountered God face to face. One by one, they fell down on their faces and trembled and shook for fear. Some of them feeling like they were dead. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and David and Solomon. And the list goes on and on. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw him high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He says, woe is me, for I am a man undone. People, when they encountered the living God, were undone because God is so far above us. And if we saw him for who he was, we should quake and tremble at his sight. Now, I'm going to put that in context, but let me tell you a little story to explain this to you. When I was in junior high, we had this principal, Mr. Yates. We actually had a slogan for him. It went like this, who hates Yates? I do. And everybody said that. Mr. Yates was fearsome. And we actually, most of us had never had an encounter with him. We were just afraid of him. Because we're in junior high and we've heard all the stories. We heard he was into corporal punishment. We heard, now this is the, the junior high brain going on for you. We heard he had a torture chamber behind his office. <laughs> and we had heard stories about kids that had gone in there and been beaten half to death. We also heard stories who went down to the principal's office 
and never came back. <laughs> and we saw him in the hallway standing there with this stern look. I'd never spoken to him before in my life. And in fact, I didn't even make eye contact with him. You just keep your head down because you don't want to get in trouble. Who knows what Mr. Yates is going to do because who hates Yates? I do. So we had this little encounter. It was about grade eight or something. My best friend in junior high was Mike. And uh, Mike wasn't very good at French. Neither was I. And we were Mr. de Montier's class. And, and uh, one day, Monsieur de Montier, he humiliated Mike for improperly conjugating a verb is what happened. And, you know, when you're, you know, 13, 14 years old, the last thing you want to do is be humiliated in front of teenage girls, right? And Mike was so mad. And he, he hatched this scheme, and he asked for my help in it. He says, Mark, I want to come on Friday night and want to egg the French room classroom windows. And I said, we can't do that. If we egg that, if we egg those windows, if we get caught, we will for sure be executed. <laughs> and, and he says, no, no, we won't get caught. We'll do it by the dark of night. We'll do it on Friday night. And no one will know but you and me. And I thought to myself, huh. Well, when you put it that way, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so the two of us went down Friday night. We bought a dozen eggs with our allowances. And we went to the school after dark. There were 12 windows. It was perfect. We took six eggs each, and we nailed every single last window. Oh, it, I got to tell you, I'm just going to confess this to you. It was so much fun. I mean, we were high-fiving each other. And we just thought that was the greatest coup of all time. Now, here's the rest of the story. Mike could not keep his mouth shut about it. Every single person we met that weekend, he told them what we had done, but, 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 he swore them to secrecy. Well, that's always a safe bet, isn't it, amongst teenagers? So here's what happened. True story. Monday morning, we're sitting in French class. In English, Monsieur de Montier says, all right, who egged my windows? Every single person in the classroom looked at me and Mike. <laughs> he immediately knew who had done it. So we got sent down to the principal's office, Mr. Yates. And I thought, this is it. My life is over. There's no cell phones. I had no time to phone my mother and say goodbye for the last time. So we get down into his office. I'm telling you, I was shaking, absolutely shaking. And he was sitting behind his desk with a belt going like this and just sort of smacking his hand like this. And then he reached over and he pulled out two pails and two sponges. And I thought to myself, there will be so much blood. They will need sponges and pails to clean it up. <laughs> and then he handed us the sponges and the pails and told us to wash the windows. <laughs> we couldn't believe our good fortune. And all we had to do, the whole school came out to wash it, watch us. There we were cleaning these windows. <laughs> and we never got the strap. We never got beaten. We never died. But here was the thing. Mr. Yates had this, this mystique about him that he was so terrifying that it actually served as this incredible deterrent. And here's what it says in Romans chapter 11. It says, do not forget the goodness and the severity of the Lord. 
and severity on those who fell and the goodness towards you. And I think that's important for us to understand something about God is that he is a good God. He is full of mercy. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. But don't think for a moment that he is some patsy that will just stand by and let you do whatever you want and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. That is not who he is. And if I was to proclaim to you that there was one singular problem in our world, one problem that is bigger than any other problem, and I I was to go through racism and hatred and violence and and war and climate change and injustice and uh, criminality and all the things, if I had to pick one thing that was wrong with our world, you know what it would be? We have lost our fear of the Lord. Nobody fears the Lord anymore. And I want to show you another little verse here. And it's in Luke chapter 12. These are the words of Jesus. You know how you know it's the words of Jesus? It's in red. That's how you know. And uh, I just pointed that out to you because if Jesus said this, it's got to be pretty important. I want you to listen carefully what he said. It's, it's really remarkable. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. Well, isn't that good news? That after they've killed you, there's nothing worse they can do to you. They're out of stuff to do. So don't be afraid of that. You all good with that so far? If, if people kill you, don't be afraid of that. Because there's nothing more than they can do. After that, all they've done is kill you. I mean, Jesus is kind of saying, like, really, what's the downside? They kill you, you're going to heaven. You're okay, you'll be okay. Why are you worrying about that? Most of you are afraid of this, by the way. Dying and people killing you. Just... Just saying. So he goes on, he says, but I show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. This is Jesus telling us to fear God. He says, you need to understand something. The fear of eternal punishment, that's the only fear you need to have. You shouldn't fear anything in this world. You shouldn't fear the destruction of your property. You shouldn't fear criminality. You shouldn't fear even death. You should not fear any of these things in this world. It goes back to what Oswald Chambers says. If you fear the Lord, there is nothing else you fear. And if we could find that place where we live, but he says, don't forget this one thing, the fear of God. And if you don't understand that, you, if you don't fear the one who can cast you into hell, then you're in trouble. And that's exactly what's wrong with our world today. Nobody fears the Lord anymore. Nobody's worried about this. You know, there was a time and day and age from biblical times, even into the Middle Ages, people were afraid of eternal damnation. People were afraid of hell. People don't even believe in hell, let alone are afraid of it today. And so consequently, it doesn't matter what they do because there is no consequences for it. I have watched... In great dismay, what's been going on around Canada in these last few weeks with the burning and vandalism of churches. Christian churches being burned to the ground all across our, our, our nation. As of yesterday, and this crowd's increasing every day, as of yesterday, it was 53 churches. 53 churches in Canada burned to the ground. And the worst part of it is that we've had, it just continues to go on. It's not going to solve any problems. It's not going to make amends or make anything right. Two wrongs don't make a right. It's not going to solve anything. It's not going to bring any kind of reconciliation between people groups. It's not going to do anything positive in that way. And yet, the political and media response has been beyond pathetic. It has been so tepid and so weak. And people have gone like this. Well, it's understandable. 
Understandable? Are you kidding me? It's criminal. It's contemptible. It's cowardly. How can it be anything other than domestic terrorism and religious hatred? Let me put it in this context for you. If it was any other religious group, if we were seeing 53 mosques or Hindu temples or Jewish synagogues being burned to the ground, it would be a national emergency. There would be public outrage everywhere and nobody's really upset about it except for me and Rex Murphy. There's not very many people outraged. Why? Because we have lost this thing called the fear of the Lord where we are willing or some people are willing or we're allowing them to go and to destroy people's houses of worship that had nothing to do with the problem 50 or 100 years ago. These are houses of worship that people built with their own hands and they go there to honor and love and worship their God. And we have other human beings destroying their property. What is wrong with our world? I told you what's wrong with our world. We've lost the fear of the Lord. And if we don't recapture some of that fear of the Lord, if the next generation doesn't capture some of this, we're in big trouble. There's a great story I love to lighten this up a little bit about these two brothers. They were just the terror of the neighborhood. If there was garbage cans rolled down the street, they did it. If a window got egged, they did it. If a bike got stolen, they did it. The mother didn't know what to do. She called up the Catholic priest and said, Father, can you talk to my boys and put the fear of God in them? He said, I can do that. So he called them into the church office, put one outside, brought the other one in, sat across from his big desk, and he thundered this at the young 12-year-old. Where is God? The boy didn't know what to say. He said it again, louder. Where is God? The boy didn't know what to say the second time. The third time, he thundered even louder. Where is God? At that, the young boy ran out the door, grabbed his brother and said, we better get out of here. God's gone missing, and they think we did it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's break this down a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about what the fear of the Lord can and should produce. And it should be at least three things. It's probably a longer list than this, but I'm going to throw it up. Here's what they are. Number one, should produce the wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Number two, our witness, the witness of our faith to others. Number three, the wonder. So let's begin with this. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And and I'll track with you as to how we get to that point. But let's talk about what wisdom is for a moment. What is wisdom? Because wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Wisdom is at a significantly higher level than is knowledge. Here's my definition of knowledge. Are you ready for this? You might want to write it down. Knowledge is knowing stuff. Aren't you glad to come to church and you learn things like this? Knowledge is knowing stuff. And how do you know stuff? You read a book. You read Wikipedia. You watch Jeopardy. It's easy to know stuff. Anybody can know stuff. Wisdom's on a whole different level. Wisdom is knowing what to do in a particular situation. And you'll remember the story of Solomon. When Solomon was the young king and he had just been installed, God came to him in a dream and said, ask what you will. He could ask for anything he wanted, riches, honor, uh, you know, anything he wanted. And he asked God for this. He said, give me wisdom that I would know how to lead this people. God was super impressed. God's not easily impressed. God was super impressed with this young man that he chose the right thing. That unselfishly, he wanted wisdom so he'd know how to lead this people. He said, so much so that I'm going to bless you with riches and honor and long life and all these other things, but I'm going to give you this wisdom. So we talk about the wisdom 
of Solomon. Then the very first instance, we have him demonstrate that wisdom in a bizarre story. And you'll remember this story. There's these two women. They have babies around the same time. One of them rolls over on the baby, suffocates it, and kills it. So in the night, she swaps it with the other woman's baby. So in the morning, they're arguing about whose baby is who. And so they're going on and on. She says, no, this is my baby. No, that's my baby. You took my baby in the middle of the night. So they're having this argument. So they bring the live baby to Solomon. And Solomon has to judge between them and determine who the baby belongs to, right? Who the baby belongs to. So here's my question. Does he have knowledge as to whose baby is who? I mean, he doesn't know. So in wisdom... He comes up with this idea, fantastic idea. He says, we'll just cut the baby in half and give you each half. Don't you think this is like the craziest story in scripture? The king, the wise one says, oh, no problem. We'll just cut the, get my sword. We'll just cut the baby in half. You each get it half. Everybody's happy, right? Immediately, the true mother says, no, let the other woman have it. And then, of course, Solomon knew that the true mother would give up the baby to spare the baby's life. And so Solomon gave that baby to that mother and made the right decision. So he didn't have knowledge, but he had wisdom. And so we look at this and we recognize, wait a minute. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I need the fear of the Lord. We all need this kind of wisdom. We all need to know how to proceed in life. And it comes from this idea of having this, this fear of God in us. You say, how does that work? How, how would the fear of the Lord possibly produce wisdom? I'll tell you why. Because when you're making difficult decisions in life, or any decisions in life, and if you have this profound sense that God is awesome and wondrous and fearful, then what you do is you want to make the right decision. And it's an interesting thing. More often than not, we know what the right decision is. We're just not willing to make it. And I used to tell my, my kids this when they, because, you know, when you're raising kids and they're going off to school or they're going off to band practice or they're going off to soccer, you know, you don't know what they're going to encounter. And you'd like to be able to micromanage their life and tell them, well, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. And if this happens, do this. And you can't do that because you don't know what eventualities they're going to encounter. So I used to simply tell my kids this. I say, here's what you do. Wake up in the morning, make a decision that no matter what happens and whatever you faced, you're going to do the right thing. And see, if you decide you're going to do the right thing, you've made a thousand decisions in advance. Are you following this? Because most of the time we know what the right thing to do is, right? It's like the little girl came home from school. Mom said, how's your day? She said, great. I had three opportunities to sin. Passed two of them up. And, and we generally know what the right thing to do is. And when we have that fear of God in us, it makes this huge and significant difference so let me give you an example. It's kind of an extreme example, but I'm going to give it because we, we face extreme problems. We face compromises in life. We face opportunities to really, you know, compromise our integrity, to lie, to cheat. It's a lot, a lot of times just easier to lie about something to, than to come clean on it, right? I mean, your boss, you've done something, you want to just, you know, lie about it and get past it. But if you do the right thing, if you fear God enough to do the right thing, it's amazing what happens. So let's say, just for example, you're having this thought one day that what you'd like to do is leave your wife, abandon your children, and run off with your secretary. Uh, if you fear the Lord, you'll probably realize that's a bad decision. I'm not being flip about it. I mean, it's true. If you have this sense of fear of God, you fear too, God too much 
to make that kind of bad decision. Because guess what? You know what you're wanting to do is wrong, but you can convince yourself. But when we have this sense that God is awesome and in charge and he is amazing and he is both good and severe, then we know what the right decision to make is. Now, I want to tell you a crazy, crazy, I'm setting this up for a story, a crazy story that happened to me probably 30 years ago. I was at a pastor's meeting here in Winnipeg. It was a luncheon. We had a guest speaker. His name was Bill McLeod. Bill McLeod was a revivalist. He was well-known. He's a Winnipegger. He was already getting older at that point. And uh, we had seen 30 years ago a whole bunch of people falling morally in church circles. And these people were crashing and burning. And it was, it was, it was sad to, to see this happening. And, and so when, as we saw that happening, he decided he was going to address that. And he told us as pastors that what was missing in the church was the fear of the Lord. And so then he told this crazy story. Here's what he did. He said, here's what I prayed some 25 years earlier. He said, I prayed this, that if Lord, I said, Lord, if I am ever unfaithful to my wife, I give you permission to strike me dead on the spot. <laughs> wow. That's bold. <laughs> and then he did the craziest thing I've ever encountered. Then he invited us to pray that prayer ourselves. He basically did an altar call where he says, well, if anyone would like to be struck dead, if you aren't faithful to your spouses, I want you to raise your hand. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Honest to goodness, this was the question. And so around the room, people were kind of sheepishly putting up their hands. And the whole time I'm thinking, my mind is just racing. I'm thinking, I don't want to be unfaithful to my wife, but nor do I want to booby trap my life and have God strike me dead if I make a mistake. I, I'm just, and I'm thinking, trying to think it through. And I'm thinking, you know, if I was on a diet, would I booby trap the fridge so that it exploded if I opened the door after 8 o'clock p.m.? No, I probably wouldn't do that. It's probably not the right way to live. Maybe a little willpower would be better than booby trapping the fridge. So I thought, I'm not booby trapping my life. And so these guys, they felt the pressure. And I'm not disrespecting Bill McLeod. I had a lot of respect for this man. But I did think this was a bizarre moment. And these men were putting up their hands hands and they were repeating this prayer please lord strike me dead <laughs> and i was saying the prayer I'm, first thing i did i did not say the prayer by the way first thing i did was i got home and i told kathy i did not say that prayer i said oh by the way an opportunity to pray for god to strike me dead if i ever cheat on you and i declined <laughs> and i told her this crazy story and i said you know what i'm not going to cheat on you a because i love you and b because i fear god too much not because I've booby-trapped my life. Are you following this thing? It's a crazy thing. We don't want to be in this place where we are so afraid of God that we, we want him or expect him to strike us dead by lightning when we make a mistake. That's not the kind of relationship he wants with us, right? He wants a real living relationship. You're following this? I think you're all following this. Got a story about this to lighten it up a little bit. So this guy goes golfing with his pastor. He's anxious to go golfing. They finally went golfing together. And uh, the two of them are out on the first green. And the, 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 the member of the church, he, he misses his putt. And he goes, I missed. I can't believe I missed. And he starts swearing a blue streak. Pastor doesn't say anything. But on the second green, he misses his putt again. And this time he goes, I missed. I can't believe I missed. And this time he starts taking the Lord's name in vain. And the pastor says, you know, Joe, if you, if you talk like that, God just might strike you with lightning. Kind of kidding, you know. The next green, 
He misses again. The guy goes ballistic. I missed. I can't believe I missed. He's banging the, the green with his club and he tosses his putter into the water trap. And just then the skies open up and a huge bolt of lightning comes down, whoosh, strikes the pastor dead on the ground. And then a voice from heaven came and said, I missed. I can't believe I missed. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's not a true story. Um, so the first thing, most important thing, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Second thing is our witness. And you see, when, when we, you can kind of get where I'm going with this. When, when, our, when we lose the fear of the Lord, what happens is we begin to compromise our faith and we begin to compromise our witness to the world. You see, the world is the world is watching, and let me show you something here. Uh, I'm in uh, Proverbs chapter eight, verse thirteen. This is what it says: "It says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate." He says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, here's my question for you: Whose evil are you supposed to hate? Are you supposed to hate the evil in the world? Are you supposed to hate? Are you supposed to be calling out hate? Are you supposed to be calling out pride? Are you supposed to be calling out arrogance in the world? No, the hate that you're, the, the evil you're supposed to hate is your own evil. And that's why Jesus actually spoke to this. He said, uh, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, what? Take the beam out of your own eye first. The hatred and the sin and the failure and the evil that's in this world, that's our own evil we're supposed to deal with first and foremost. And so when you fear the Lord, that in, by very definition is to hate evil. But it's the evil in ourselves. And the problem we have with our witness is this, is that when we compromise our faith, when we live without the fear of the Lord, do you know what we do? We just start to live like the world, and the world notices it. Do you think the world doesn't notice? You know, when I, I've been in ministry some 40 years, and in 40 years I've seen so many men of God fall morally. Just one after the other. It started when I was first in the ministry. There was people, you'll recognize some of these names. Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggard. There was Ted Haggard. More recently, there was Carl Lentz. There was Ravi Zacharias, which was a heartbreaker. There was Bill Hybels, one of my heroes, Willow Creek Church, who six months before he retired, this great revelation of this huge scandal, sexual scandal in his church. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And if you don't think that the world notices that thing, think again. The world not only notices preachers and their malfeasance, they notice your transgressions as well. Our witness is only as good as our lifestyle. And if we don't hate the evil in our own life, people are going to notice. And I remember my pastor growing up used to say this, if you want to know how a Christian should live, just ask a non-Christian. They'll know how you ought to live. And don't think they're not looking at us. They are. We are being watched all the time. Paul said this, that you're a living epistle, known and read, by all men. I'm going to tell you something that was sort of, this is going to sound really weird for me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was so glad when Billy Graham died. No, not because he died, but because he died at 99 years old without a single scandal of his own making. He made it through the whole run. 
We needed a hero. We needed someone that could make it through. And I mean, God kept him alive till 99. I thought, boy, I don't know. He's 98. You know, hope he doesn't fall. <laughs> I hope he doesn't mess up. And he goes and makes it to 99. And I thought, why did he live so long? I think God used him as an example. And I, I remember in 1993, he was interviewed by the BBC's David Frost. Uh, here's a picture uh, of that conversation. And David Frost was asking him all these different questions. I'll never forget this one question. He said to him, he said, Mr. Graham, are you looking forward to going to heaven and going on to your reward? And Billy Graham said, frankly, I'm a little bit nervous about that because I'm not sure that I have been as faithful to what God's asked me to do as I should have been. And I remember hearing that thinking, if Billy Graham is worried I'm in big trouble. <laughs> if Billy Graham was worried, we're all in big trouble. Now understand thing, this, that it's not like walking a tightrope. If you think it's like walking a tightrope, we know that God is merciful and he forgives us. But it was so exciting for me to see someone who made it his whole life without this huge, messy scandal. And you know what? I want to finish well too. And I want you to finish well also. Here's my little story about this. Billy Graham dies and goes to heaven. First day, St. Peter invites him for lunch. The two of them sit down. They have a tuna fish sandwich. Second day, he invites him for lunch again. Another tuna fish sandwich. Third day, invites him for lunch. Again, tuna fish sandwich. Billy Graham says to St. Peter, look, I don't mean to be ungrateful, but I came to heaven. I was expecting big banquets and big feasts and all kinds of different kinds of food. Three days in a row and all we've had is tuna fish sandwiches. To which St. Peter said, well, with only the two of us up here, does it really pay to cook? <laughs> We're hoping that's not where that goes. So the first thing is, of course, the wisdom. The second thing is the witness, our witness. The third thing and the final thing is the wonder. You see, the fear of the Lord has an ability to produce wonder in each and every one of us. And so let me explain it this way. Uh, some of you remember in Acts chapter 5, the church was doing great, but they seemed to have lost their fear of the Lord. So much so that they were selling off their farms and they were pulling the money. And there was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that sold off their land and they lied about how much money they were giving to the church. And it wasn't, it was their volunteer, their own will and volition to give whatever they wanted, but they lied about how much it was. And they said, is this the whole amount? And they said, yeah, they wanted to look good. And they said, it's the whole amount. And Ananias said at first, and when he did that, uh, St. Peter says, what caused you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he fell dead right in front of him. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in and she gets asked the same question. She lies as well. and She falls down dead. Now, it doesn't say God struck them dead. I suppose it was a coincidence they both died. Doubt it. But what happened, and this is where I'm going with this, because that part's the crummy part of the story. Uh, the good part of this story is it says, And great fear came upon the church, and many signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. The power of God was restored. The wonder of God was restored to the church when the fear of the Lord was restored. I hope you're not missing this. So I want to just close one quick final story on this. Uh, a story you'll all remember. January 15th, uh, 2009, flight 1549 out of LaGuardia. It was a U.S. Airways flight. And you remember it was captained by Captain Sullenberg. And the plane sucked up a bird in its first engine and then sucked up another bird in its second engine. 
And there it was, powerless, going over, this, just taken off. And Captain Sullenberg immediately knew he wasn't getting back to, to the airport and he was going to have to ditch this plane in the Hudson River. Now, he was a fighter pilot. He was tremendously skilled. He managed to save all those people's lives. But there's another story, another heroic story in this that most people have never heard. And it was the story of a man by the name of Michael Whitesides. Two days before this incident, he was reading his Bible. He was in Genesis 22. He read the story about how Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because of the fear of the Lord. And he thought to himself, that's how I want to live. I want to live in the fear of the Lord, that I fear nothing else in this world but him. So now all of a sudden he's on this flight. The first bird goes into the engine. The second bird goes into the other engine. Everybody knew that plane was going down. Everybody knew. Everybody's on their cell phones because they're all within range because they're within basically city limits. They're all phoning their loved ones and they're saying goodbye. So he decides in that moment that he's going to say goodbye to God. And he says, Lord, I'm ready. And the Lord said, what are you talking about? You're not done yet. I have a job for you. So he realized this peace came over him. He realized that, he, that his moment wasn't there. That he had something he had to do. He didn't know what it was. And so the plane gets set down on the Hudson River. It doesn't sink immediately because there's, there's air in the fuselage. He's in the aisle row. He's in, in row 10B. He goes and pops the door off, throws it out. The moment he has that door off, this woman goes running from the door and jumps out right into the Hudson River. And she's in the Hudson River. It's January 15th. It's 20 below. The water's freezing. She's going to drown. She's going to freeze to death. He, in that moment, has to make a decision and not fearing for his own life, he dives out of the plane and rescues that woman and swims her back to the wing where everybody else got out. (laughs) If you look at the picture, they all got out in the wind. All 155 people were saved. And they couldn't believe the act of heroism, the wonderful act that this man did. And they, they said to him, How do you, you can't prepare for a moment like that. He says, you can prepare for a moment like that. When you fear God and trust him, you fear nothing else and you were always prepared. You see, the fear of God needs to be restored back to you and me and the rest of the church. It needs to be restored back to our world because when the fear of God comes, that is the beginning of wisdom. That is the perfect witness to the world and that, of course, is the gateway to the wonders of God that he wants to do amongst his people. That's the story of the fear of the Lord. All right, why don't we all stand together? And I want to just take a moment because I know in this room there are people or maybe online that have not made that decision to follow Christ. And that's the first step. I think by this point you've probably realized the importance of the fear of God and how we all need that. We all are not going to make it through life without that. And the first step is to invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, if you're in this room with every head bowed, every eye closed, If you've never made that decision in this room, I want to give you an opportunity. Online, if you have not made this decision to be a follower of Christ, there's a little button at the top of your screen that says raise hand. By doing that, you're making this commitment right now. And I'll just ask one more time, if there's anyone in this room, every head is bowed, every eye is closed, is there anyone in this room that needs to make that decision? If you'll just slip up your hand, nobody's looking around. Just take that moment so I can see that. Thank you, sir. A couple of hands in the room. And what we're going to do is we're going to say this prayer together. And so if you click the button or if you raised your hand, let's all say this prayer, but let's all say it together. 
because we all need the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross that you died for my sin even though I was going my own way without any fear of you whatsoever. But that changes today because you died for me, rose on the third day. You forever live to be my Lord, the awesome, the amazing, and the fearsome God of heaven. And today I commit to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a shout today. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.